You're listening to Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. Today, the play that has no plot, no villain, no dramatic stakes, and no happy ending. It's Love's Labor's Lost. Our late edict shall strongly stand in force. Navarre shall be the wonder of the world. Our court shall be a little Acadie. Dear lady... I have sworn an oath. Our lady help my lord, he'll be forsworn. Not for the world, fair madam, by my will. That last is Verone, the merry madcap lord. Not a word with him, but a jest. What? I love, I sue, I seek a wife. A woman that is like a German clock. Still a-repairing, ever out of frame. So the boy says, Did I not dance with you in Brabant once? And the girl says, Did I not dance with you in Brabant once? So the boy says, I know I did, you were wearing a mask. And the girl says, If you knew the answer, then why bother to ask? Welcome, Marquette, but that thou interrupt'st our merriment. I am sorry, madam, for the news I bring is heavy in my tongue. The king, your father... Dead for my life. Even so. As always, we're going to start off with a brief summary. How brief? This is Love's Labor's Lost in one minute. Let's start the timer. Go. All is content in the state of Navarre. Everyone has sworn to devote themselves to three years of study, fasting, and no women. Don Armado, a Spaniard, has Costard arrested for having a tryst with the calmly Jacquinetto, who Don Armado has also been having a tryst with. Meanwhile, the Princess of France arrives. The king falls in love with her and his three companions. Baron Dumaine and Longueville fall in love with her three companions, Rosalind, Catherine, and Maria. Don Armado gives Costard a love letter for Jacquinetta, while Baron gives Costard a letter for Rosalind, but Costard confuses the letters, and Jacquinetta, reading Baron's letter, is told to take it to the king. This doesn't end up mattering much, because Barone has already convinced the king to give up his vow so he and his friends can pursue the women they love. They all disguise themselves as Russians to court the ladies, learning of the plan, the ladies disguise themselves too, a lot of farce ensues, the men apologize, and everyone sits down to watch a play performed by Costard and his friends. News arrives that the French princess's father has died, so she must return home. And so, as the title warned us, love's labor has been lost. Don Armado swears to care for Jacquinetta, who he has impregnated, and then he sings a song called The Owl and the... The cuckoo then on every tree Mocks married men for thus sings he There's absolutely no reason why I should like Love's Labor's Lost. It has no plot, and there's virtually no dramatic stakes. The king demands his subjects abstain from women, but he's not exactly executing them when they disobey. And yet, the play has such a charming premise, and such amusing characters. It's content to be nothing more than what its title promises us it will be. It is a play first about the labor of love, and then about that labor getting lost. I admit I am enchanted every time this play crosses my path. In naming the play Love's Labor's Lost, Shakespeare perhaps chose his greatest title. It only appears to be a spoiler. In fact, though it warns us the labor of love will be unsuccessful, it presents so many comic couples that we can't tell who will have a happy ending and who will not. Of course, no one has a happy ending in Love's Labor's Lost, except perhaps Jacquinetta, who will finally be cared for by the father of her baby. 
that the play is more popular with scholars than theatergoers is probably because its wit is a complicated one. The play struggles to achieve the timeless quality of Twelfth Night or As You Like It, chiefly because its comedy is often a linguistic one. Take this exchange between Don Armado and his servant Moth. How comes thou part sadness and melancholy, my tender juvenal? By a familiar demonstration of the working, my tough senor. Why, tough senor? Why, tough senor? Why, tender juvenal? Why, tender juvenal? I spoke it, tender juvenal, as a congruent epitheton appertaining to thy young days, which we may nominate tender. And I, tough senor, as an appurtenant title to your old time, which we may name Pretty and apt. How mean you, sir? I pretty and my saying apt, or I apt and my saying pretty? Thou pretty because little. Little pretty because little. I'll just stop it there. Suffice it to say, this goes on for much of the play, a fact which may exhaust the modern theatergoer. Now, it also doesn't help that the plot of Love's Labor's Lost is not just weak, but arguably non-existent. I've mentioned before that the plot has always been Shakespeare's weakness, and he doesn't prove me wrong with this bare-boned storyline in which a French princess arrives, a French princess leaves, and not much happens in between. The thin storyline of Love's Labor's Lost has in fact made it great source material for musicals, thus confirming Harold Bloom's assertion that, quote, Love's Labor's Lost is an opera rather than a libretto that an opera could enhance, end quote. Operas and musicals often have thin storylines precisely so that there will be more time to squeeze in all of those songs. Watching Love's Labor's Lost, one wonders if it wouldn't be more fun if everything was set to a jaunty tune. Now, someone actually did write an opera in 1973, and back in 2000, Kenneth Branagh produced a film in which everyone broke into songs from Hollywood's earliest days. There was also a 2013 musical by Michael Friedman and Alex Timbers, which I'll be discussing later, primarily because it's one of the most sparkling cast recordings ever to reach my ears. Now, other plays have weak storylines, of course. It will hardly be original of me to remark on the similarities between Love's Labor's Lost and A Midsummer Night's Dream, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Both have the same limited plot, and both have a fifth act that is devoted entirely to a theatrical presentation produced by people who have no business producing a theatrical presentation. The Fool Costard has much in common with The Fool Bottom, and the various lovers are as interchangeable as pairs of matching socks. Now, I'll spare my critique of all those dullards in A Midsummer Night's Dream for now. As for those lovers that populate Love's Labor's Lost, sadly, there's not much, at least on the page, to make them truly memorable things. Barone and Rosalind are the witty ones, and everyone else is, well, everyone else. Longueville loves Maria, and Dumaine loves Catherine. Or is it the other way around? You know, it almost doesn't matter, and if the actor switched costumes halfway through a production, I'm not sure anyone would notice. Not that any actor should. The great appeal of Love's Labor's Lost, at least from a theatrical standpoint, is that its sparse storyline and two-dimensional characters provide great opportunity for actors and directors alike to stretch their legs. Yes, the characters themselves on the page aren't that interesting, but that gives a lot of room for actors to prove their worth. The similarities to Midsummer Night's Dream are obvious, and yet I've always seen Love's Labor's Lost more as a prototype for As You Like It, and it's not just because both feature a witty girl named Rosalind. Both plays feature multiple couples and are largely plot-free, 
Both also feature such a dazzling display of language that I can't quite bring myself to care that not much is happening and nothing's at stake. Now somewhere in the historical record, there is a document listing a play called Love's Labors One. Now, some people think that this might have been a sequel to Love's Labor's Lost, while the, there's another popular theory that this was an alternate title to Much Ado About Nothing. But it strikes me, as it struck the writer David Grote in his 2002 book The Best Actors in the World, that Love's Labor's One would be an appropriate title for As You Like It. The two plays actually work well as companion pieces, for both Love's Labor's Lost and As You Like It are essentially theatrical discourses on love, sex, fidelity, and whether one lover can really ever trust the other. Midsummer Night's Dream discusses these things, but only in a few scenes, obsessed as it is with all those fairies and sprites. But in both Love's Labor's Lost and As You Like It, love is always the central theme. Perhaps one of Shakespeare's smartest ploys was to give the lovers a past, thus allowing him to avoid asking anyone to believe in love at first sight. With love at first sight already a cliché in Shakespeare's time, it's refreshing to encounter a play where everybody has seen everybody before. Maria saw Longueville at a marriage feast, Catherine saw Dumaine at the Duke Allison's, and of course there's the fact that Barone danced with Rosalind, but he can't really quite remember when. <clears throat> Did not I dance with you in Brabant once? Did not I dance with you in Brabant once? I know you did. How needless was it then to ask the question? You must not be so quick. It is long of you that spur me with such questions. Your wit's too hot, it speeds too fast, twill tire. Not till it leave the rider in the mire. What time of day? The hour that fools should ask. Now fare before your mask. Fair the face it covers. And send you many lovers. Amen. So you be none? Nay then. Will I be gone? The truth is, Shakespeare knew a good shortcut when he saw it, and he would return to this particular well several more times throughout the canon. Beatrice and Benedict have a history, and Antony and Cleopatra, All's Well That Ends Well, and A Midsummer Night's Dream all open with many characters already having chosen their desired mates. He'll use love at first sight again, of course, see the aforementioned as you like it, but he'll also mock it, as he does in Twelfth Night or use it for tragic purposes, as he does in Romeo and Juliet. Giving his characters a history allows him to start his stories in Medeus Res, which is a very fancy way of saying after the story has already started or in the middle of the action. Hamlet opens like this, as does King Lear. In fact, most of Shakespeare's best plays begin in the middle of the action, introducing us to characters who were all introduced to each other a very long time before we ever walked into the theater. In the case of Love's Labor's Lost, Shakespeare uses this technique to hone in on one of the play's central themes. Love's Labor's Lost is about love, but it is more about second chances. Everybody knows each other, but no one has a romantic past, except for Don Amato and Jacquinetta. Everyone else gets another chance to take part in Love's Labor, while Don Amato is given the chance to not abandon the commoner who he loves. Shakespeare also plays up the comedy by adding commentary. The women remember the men, and while the men recall the women, they really aren't very good with the details. One by one, the princess's servant Boyer is accosted for a litany of names. Sir, I pray you a word. What lady is that same? The heir of Alençon. Catherine, her name. A gallant lady. Monsieur, fare you well. I uh, beseech you a word. What is she in the white? 
A woman sometimes, and you saw her in the light. Perchance light in the light. I desire her name. She hath but one for herself. To desire that were a shame. Pray, sir, whose daughter? Her mother's, I have heard. God's blessing on your beard. Good sir, be not offended. She is an heir of Falconbridge. Nay, my collar is ended. She is a most sweet lady. Not unlike, sir, that may be. <clears throat> What's her name in the cap? Rosaline, by good hap. Is she wedded or no? To her will, sir, or so. You are welcome, sir. Adieu. Farewell to me, sir, and welcome to you. You could use scenes like this to go on and on about the verbal brilliance that is always on display in Love's Labor's Lost. Love's Labor's Lost is a writer's play in that it exalts in words and wordplay. Shakespeare had tried such things before with varying levels of success. Recall Launce and his dog in Two Gentlemen of Verona, or all of those unpleasant people who were nonetheless still very witty in Taming of the Shrew. This time around, he succeeds admirably, so that no matter who's talking, they are always a delight to listen to. The play is so in love with words that it's not surprising it contains the longest word in the English language that features alternating consonants and vowels. That word is honorific abilitude in ititatibus, a word that I'm only going to say once because if I try to do it again, I'm just going to get it wrong. It's spoken by Costard, who is a great delight, even if he does tend to talk so much that one suspects the actor who played him had slipped Shakespeare a few pieces of remuneration. My good knave Costard, exceedingly well met. Pray you, sir, uh, how much carnation ribbon may a man buy for a remuneration? What is a remuneration? Marry, sir, ain't me farthing. Why then, three farthing worth of silk? Oh, well, thank you, worship. Go be with you. Uh, stay, slave, I must employ thee. As thou wilt win my favour, good my knave, do one thing for me that I shall entreat. When would you have it done, sir? This afternoon. Well, I will do it, sir, fare you well. Thou knowest not what it is. Well, I shall know, sir, when I've done it. White villain, thou must know first. It is true that the storyline involving Costar, Jaquinetta, and Don Armado lives and dies by its wit. It's an extended sketch that spans much of the play, and when the play is adapted, this part is often whittled down, if not ignored altogether. The actual premise involving four boys who swear off love right at the moment when love discovers them lends itself well to modernization. Now, I haven't seen the 2016 film that's set at a boarding school, but there's not a moment in the trailer when the adaptation seems out of place. Fair Princess, welcome to the School of Navarre. Fair, I give you back again. And welcome, I have not yet. You three, Barone, Dumaine, and Longville, have sworn for three years' term to live with me, my fellow scholars. As for that 2013 musical by Alex Timbers and Michael Friedman, they pulled a similar trick, moving the plot to present day and adding songs that capture the characters with ease. Here's Barone protesting the whole no women rule right at the start. Young men are supposed to have sex. Young men are supposed to have sex and get drunk and sleep in on Sunday morning till brunch. Young men aren't supposed to read philosophy between the ages of 22 and 30. Young men are supposed to be callow and cavalier about things that later they will have to think are important. Young men, young men, young men. And just because it's so much fun, here's another number from later in the play. This is right after the women discover that the men are in love with them. It's not a good idea to listen to these boys. 
They swear they are in love, then treat our hearts like little toys. They send us empty words in rhyme. Why does it get you every time? They made a solemn oath that didn't last a single day. So it's not a good idea to put much faith in things they say. Cause any love that comes this fast is a folly that won't last. But if they really are in love, what is love? What does it mean? He thinks he loves a plastic princess, not a partner, not a queen. He doesn't notice who he's chasing, he just likes to make the chase. He makes these grand elaborate gestures, but won't look me in the face. He talks and talks so he can cover up his insecurity. He is exactly like my dad. Oh, oh no. He's exactly like me. The musical doesn't cut away the costard subplot, but I really understand the temptation to do so. If Love's Labor's Lost had featured a lot more Barone and Rosalind and a lot less Don Armado and Jacquinetta, it might be less witty, but more popular. This is an ensemble play without a strong central character, and it can be hard to know who to root for. The wit can be exhausting, and coupled as it is with comedy understandable only to Elizabethans or people with master's degrees, the play's humor can sometimes be difficult to fully comprehend. One is sometimes reminded of those parodies that appear in movie theaters from time to time, the ones that mock and imitate the films that were popular in the last two years. Try to watch them now, and it's not quite the same. You could spend a year dissecting all the jokes in Love's Labor's Lost, but in doing so, you risk proving that Mark Twain adage that humor, like frogs, die when dissected for study. This doesn't stop people from doing the dissection, I'm just not going to do it now. It could be argued that the popularity of The Comedy of Errors has to do entirely with its relentless plot. Your actors may be weak, but every few minutes there's a new crisis or problem to drive those twins from Syracuse from one moment to the next. There have been bad productions of the Comedy of Errors, to be sure, but that's rarely been Shakespeare's fault. Love's Labor's Lost, on the other hand, is a show that I really enjoy when the acting is strong and really loathe when the acting is weak. This is a sensation I also get when watching the plays of Anton Chekhov, and it's hard not to imagine Chekhov appreciating Love's Labor's Lost, since his own plays are also largely plotless and are really an assembly of scenes involving the same characters who discuss a central theme. As in Love's Labor's Lost and Midsummer Night's Dream and As You Like It, there's a mingling of classes in Chekhov with the trials of the upper class always juxtaposed with those of the lower. Chekhov's characters are of course sadder than Shakespeare's, but you can't say that Love's Labor's Lost wouldn't be a fine title for The Seagull. Love goes unrequited in that play, despite everyone's best efforts. We expect plotlessness from Chekhov, but Shakespeare has it too, and rarely is this seen more than in Love's Labor's Lost. In Chekhov, there's never really much of a story to save you, and if the acting is bad, the production is always painful. The same can be said about any version of Love's Labor's Lost. Here, then, is my advice to the players. Cast your Barones and your Rosalinds with care, and if the right actors don't appear, change your handbills and produce something else instead. And now comes the part on the podcast where I talk to you about filmed versions of the play I've discussed. Love's Labor's Lost is popular enough that several productions have been put to film, so if you want to experience all the sparkling wit for yourself, you don't have to go that far. The BBC did their televised version back in the 80s, and as always, there's a solid audio version from Archangel Recordings. But if you're a purist, and you want your Love's Labor's Lost more or less complete, visual, and set in Elizabethan times, then you can't miss with the production staged at the Globe in 2009 and committed to eternity on DVD. 
Directed by Dominique Dromgoul, this production stars a multiracial cast and does full justice to the text, with a special shout out to Paul Reddy, who is the funniest Don Armado I've ever seen. Shows produced at the Globe are almost always done with minimal sets and in full classic regalia, and as that's how I prefer my Shakespeare, don't be surprised if I recommend their productions again. But despite my preference for Shakespeare done as Shakespeare intended, I can't dismiss the musicalized versions which, as I've said, are about as much fun as the play itself. You've probably guessed right now that I'm a big fan of the Alex Timbers Michael Friedman version, so perhaps now's the time for me to discuss Kenneth Branagh, who decided that what Shakespeare needed was the addition of George Gershwin, Irving Berlin, and a little iambic pentameter tap dancing. Have at you then, affections men at arms. Consider what you first did swear unto. Taken as a whole, the movie is not the greatest I've ever seen, but it does have its moments, and Branagh's central idea to turn Love's Labor's Lost into a 1930s movie musical strikes me as a good one. The cast is full of stars from the end of the century, that's the 20th century, with Alicia Silverstone as the princess, Matthew Lillard as Longville, and Nathan Lane as Costard. Of course, this is a Hollywood musical, so not everyone can sing and dance as well as your average Broadway star, but the movie tries hard, and if you want to dip your feet into Love's Labor's Lost without taking a whole bath, it's probably the place to start. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. Well, that's it for this episode of Shakespeare Unbarred. Next week, we look at the funniest play Shakespeare ever wrote. How funny is it? It's so funny he put the word comedy in the title. It's Comedy of Errors. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it in the iTunes store. You can visit the show page at www.joelfishbane.net slash Shakespeare Unbarred. And hey, while you're there, why not take a look at the other things I do with my time? You can even find information on my novel, The Thunder of Giants, a work of historical fiction about two eight-foot-tall women struggling to survive in a world that's too small to contain them. It's available now from St. Martin's Press. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare and Bard. Eight plays down, 30 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it.